Jesuitical is supported by the Hank Center at Loyola University, Chicago. On November 16th, the Hank Center welcomes filmmakers Simonetta D'Italia Wiener and TJ Burden for an in-person screening of Unguarded, a film that tells the story of successful restorative justice work and prison reform in Brazil and America. All are welcome. To learn more about the Hank Center and its programs, please visit www.luc.edu slash ccih. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Good to be with you, Ashley. This is a different triduum of sorts. Yeah, we got all souls. Well, Halloween. <laughs> all saints, all souls. Big week. Yep. Big week for uh, Catholic culture. So yep, I'm for here sure. for it. <laughs> yes, and we have a great conversation for you as well. We are talking to Kelly Deutsch. Kelly is an author, podcaster, and the founder of Spiritual Wanderlust, a center for contemplative formation. And we talked to Kelly about the contemplative life, the sources in the Catholic tradition, specifically from women, where we can learn about how to become a, a mystic in the modern age. Yeah, I feel like mysticism is one of those words that we throw around a lot, but Rarely, it's it's sort of like if you ask someone what is mysticism, and they'll be like, "Ah, oh, well, it's, it's it's mystical. That's why yeah. we can't explain it to you." <laughs> yeah. Luckily, Kelly does not resort down that path, and she does a great job of giving us an intro into how to, you know, prepare yourself to become a mystic. Yep. And Kelly had a drink recommendation for us, which was seltzer with lime. I'm a huge seltzer fan, so. This is a treat. <laughs> and yeah, big, big seltzer person. Uh, I have no loyalties to any brands. Um, I do love a LaCroix, LaCroix. Mm. We've got Seagram's here at the office, so that's what Seagram's we're going it with. is. <laughs> All right. Cheers. Cheers. But before we get to our conversation with Kelly, we have a few words about our sponsor this week. Here at Jesuitical, we are big believers that the only way to break the stigmas around mental health is by talking about it and hearing about other people's stories and experiences. And thankfully, Wondrium is a wonderful, reliable resource for information, support, and strategies on finding our own strength in mental health. That's right. They've got over 240 lessons in mental health topics delivered by practicing psychologists, cognitive behavioral therapists, yoga instructors, integrative medicine experts, and university professors. So we know that we're learning from people that know their stuff. Yeah. And we highly recommend checking out Wondrium's new series, Finding Strength in Mental Health. It's really helpful to hear from public figures like iconic sports icon Sugar Ray Leonard, in their own words about having to deal with mental health issues. So it's very moving and inspiring. Yeah, I also would recommend uh, cognitive behavioral therapy for daily life. It's got some great, easy-to-learn techniques that can put us back in charge of our emotions, feelings, and behaviors. In addition to that, Wondrium also has Mindfulness for the Workplace. It's a series that offers great tools to help us manage job stress, burnout, corporate change, and productivity. Oh, and procrastination. Something <laughs> Not I know. that you need help with that. <laughs> no, a little bit about that. Yeah. So give your mental well-being a boost if it needs it with Wondrium. Trust us, you'll love these courses. And right now, Wondrium is offering our listeners 50% off your first three months. That's half off when you sign up for your first quarterly plan. It's a really great deal. So sign up today through our special URL to get this offer. To do that, go to wondrium.com slash jesuitical. Again, that's W-O-N 
D-R-I-U-M.com slash Jesuitical. And now we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. Uh, and our first story this week is a new survey of clergy in the United States. Uh, it comes from the Catholic Project at the Catholic University of America, and it found that U.S. priests are facing burnout, they fear false allegations of sexual abuse, and they worry that their bishops won't defend them in the face of false allegations. That's right. The report's titled Well-Being, Trust, and Policy in a Time of Crisis, highlights from the National Study of Catholic Priests. And some of the highline items from the report are uh, 45% of priests say that they've experienced at least one symptom of ministry burnout. Um, interestingly, uh, only a third of religious order priests experience burnout as opposed to half of diocesan priests. You're not familiar with those two distinctions. Uh, diocesan priest. This is probably the one you encounter most in Catholic life. This is someone who uh, is ordained for a diocese, like a geographical area, usually staffs a parish that you'd go to regularly, whereas religious order priests, these are your Jesuits, your Dominicans, your Franciscans. Um, in, the, in addition to those being different, right, they kind of are geographically separate. Uh, religious order priests also live in community with other priests, whereas most diocesan priests are oftentimes either alone or maybe have one roommate in the rectory. Yeah, and the, the report didn't really get into whether that is a causal factor in, in burnout and other issues of, of well-being among priests, but you have to imagine that living in community has some mental health benefits. Another big finding was that trust in bishops among clergy is also on the decline. Um, and if, we talk a lot about kind of like how the lady views the bishops as the bishops and can, you know, sometimes uh, has some strong criticisms of them. But I was interested to find that only 24 percent of U.S. priests express confidence in the leadership of the U.S. bishops in general, which seemed low to me. <laughs> yeah, that was I think most people would find that surprising for people that are we think of deeply embedded in the institution, our, our priests to also have a pretty significant lack of trust in the the bishops leading the institution, I think is wildly significant. Yeah. One connection they make is how trust in bishops has declined since 2002 when the sex abuse crisis really hit the United States. So in, in 2001, 63% of priests said they had trust in their own bishop. And today that's down to 49%. Yeah. And this is sort of the phenomena where it's like, oh, I hate Congress, but I love my congressman. And that's not really even true for priests, right? And they're, you know, it's not even like, oh, I love my bishop, but I'm really wary of the the bishops, right? So we're, it declined all around. Yeah. And the connection to the sex abuse crisis is this idea that uh, clergy do live in fear of being falsely accused of sexual abuse. 82% of priests said they regularly feared that. And most of them don't trust that their bishop or diocese will come to their defense in the face of a false allegation. You know, I want to pause there because I feel like it's important to say a couple things because I imagine some people are hearing that and rolling their eyes, right? Like, oh, come on, right? That is not the problem. First, we should say that false allegations are extremely rare, but they do happen. The sort of landmark report uh, was from on sex abuse in the Catholic Church was the John Jay College of Criminal Justice. This was in 2004. Looked at over 5,000 cases um, investigated by diocese and religious community, and 1.5% uh, were false and 18% were unsubstantiated. So most times when survivors come forward, it is a, a credible allegation. That 1.5 false allegations, very low number, but I think it's important to see this from a priest perspective where they are getting annual training 
about, you know, and this is a very good thing, but they are being constantly reminded about the protocols around sexual abuse. So it's something that is on their mind. I don't find it that surprising that it's something that that a priest would worry about like that. What what dominates headlines <laughs> in the United States around the Catholic Church? Well, yeah. And like even just it's got to influence your just day to day ministry about how you you think that other people are thinking about you as you're doing things. Um, maybe it's got to be tough. And I I have heard that personally. I have heard that from priests, just like discomfort around, it. you know, all it takes is one one thing and then it all goes up in smoke. You know, as you said, all these trainings are good, right? It's false allegations are rare. These things can be true. Um, and I think we also have to look at, okay, what's what's really behind this fear? Um, I don't think we know that, but it's I, it's worth getting into and exploring. Yeah. And just to wrap up, we, we've all experienced burnout. It's not a lot of fun. So, you know, your priest is going through it too. So if you can bring him a casserole or just thank him for what he's doing, they're working really hard. And most of them are good dedicated servants of the church. Yeah, buy him a beer. (laughs) (laughs) All right, what's our next story, Zach? So as we mentioned last week, Election Day is coming up uh, November 8th. uh, And highlighting a story this week from Arizona where the Arizona Conference of Catholic Bishops alerted voters and Catholics to, quote, unapproved political efforts they say are being carried out by a number of organizations and publications claiming to represent the Catholic Church on a variety of issues on the ballot. Right. And in their statements, uh, the bishops continued, we must stress that the Catholic Church is always politically nonpartisan. Moreover, it is worth recalling that the Catholic Church has a long tradition of our beliefs influencing our personal politics, not our personal politics trying to influence our faith. When we reverse those two, we place ourselves outside the tradition and teachings of the Catholic Church. Yes. So uh, as the bishops reminded us, the church is nonpartisan. Um, so it does stick up for principles um, and even certain like ballot measures, like the church definitely weighs in on like, oh, you should vote yes on ballot measure this, no on ballot measure that. Um, it doesn't real. it does not weigh into candidates or political parties. That said, there are organizations out there that exist that carry the moniker Catholic that are extremely partisan and are, are very interested in swaying your vote, not just to one issue or uh, or the other, but to one like side politically and have a vested interest in sort of muddying those waters. Yeah. So one of those is Catholic Vote. Zach, can you give us a little rundown of what they do? I would say most people have probably heard of this group. The, we should say the bishops, the Arizona bishops do not name names, but Catholic Vote is this nonprofit that has also a political advocacy arm um, that, you know, calls itself Catholic Vote, which implies like if you just see that and you come across a mailing, they send out tons of mailers. They've got a huge online social media presence, producing videos, organizing conferences. Speakers are next to, um, they've got speakers going to rallies and things like that. Um, all aimed at really promoting Republican candidates. They, you know, in their defense, they would probably say they, they've promoted pro-life Democrats before when in the rare instance that that happens. But if you click over to their website, they've got like, endorsements for candidates in like so many different races, which sort of flies in the face of what the Arizona bishops are saying is the church being nonpartisan. Right. And it's not just those on the side of Republicans who are doing this. Another prominent group is Catholics for Choice, uh, which uh, uses the word Catholic in its name, despite (laughs) I think the bishops being pretty clear that they do not in any way represent church teaching and are 
kind of being deceptive and calling themselves that. And we should say they are a pro-abortion rights group. Yeah, it's funny. I think both of these groups, they're honest in saying that they're not representing the bishops, but in that they're saying, we're just, you know, we're just some lay Catholics trying to represent lay Catholic voices, which, you know, I don't have a real problem with. But I do think there is a pretty significant level of deception (laughs) involved when you sort of carry the torches if you are representing everybody and not acknowledging that there's a pretty big disagreement on a number of these issues among Catholics, right? Yeah. And I see the biggest problem is for those in the secular media who are covering politics in the church, they don't see the fine distinctions of like Catholic vote is not the same as the Catholic church. So when they're saying this is what Catholics believe or this is what Catholics are advocating for, they look to these partisan groups and lift those up as the kind of like prime example of Catholic political involvement. Yeah. Another wrinkle in this is that according to canon law, this is canon 216 of the Code of Canon Law, which says no initiative can lay claim to the title Catholic without the consent of the competent ecclesiastical authority because the use of the name Catholic implies that the initiative somehow represents the Catholic Church. I don't know who the competent ecclesiastical authorities are. I'm not a canonist. I would say there are probably some like pretty big red flags, though, with both of these groups using Catholic in in their name, right? At least from a church law perspective, you know, American legal system, they can probably do whatever they want. But, I, you know, I would have some questions both for these organizations and for their, quote, competent ecclesiastical authorities. I assume that means the bishop in this case of the, wherever they're based. And this is why we don't have Catholic in our name and, <laughs> <laughs> and right we right. don't tell you how to vote. <laughs> no, no. And so if, we, if you are looking for uh, something that is nonpartisan and non-toxic, uh, that is exploring the issues from a Catholic perspective. Um, we put it in your feed last week at the end of last week's episode. Again, a brand new season of Voting Catholic is out. Uh, hop over uh, wherever you're listening to the, this podcast. Check out that feed. They're tackling inflation, uh, guns, and abortion um, uh, ahead of the midterms this year. Yeah, and we also have at americanmagazine.org a last-minute Catholic voters guide to kind of take you through some of those issues as well as other ones as we approach Tuesday's election. All right. Uh, you made your plan to vote? Uh, yes, I sure have. I'm going Tuesday in person. I was going to go early and procrastinate. I like going on election day. Yeah, it feels, yeah, yeah. it's a big fanfare. <laughs> Good. All right. So stick around now for our conversation with Kelly Deutsch. Joining us from Salem, Oregon, is Kelly Deutsch. Kelly is an author, podcaster, and the founder of Spiritual Wonderless, a center for contemplative formation. Welcome to Jesuitical, Kelly. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thanks for being here. I'm wondering if, for this conversation, if you could just sort of pin down or define that that, that pesky word, mysticism, because I feel like people always like to say that, well, you know, it's kind of mystical. It's tough to tough to really get to. <laughs> yes, yes. And that's a great question because people mean a lot of different things by the word mystical or mysticism. And I think because of how fuzzy the definition is, that's why there's a lot of misconceptions about what it is. Some mm-hmm. people think it's really woo-woo, esoteric, you know, maybe it's a new agey thing. But the way that a lot of the mystics talk about it is the search for or experience of divine union. That's how I like to put it in a nutshell, although any of them will tell you that it's hard to pin down by definition. It's shrouded in mystery, but that would be my short definition. And is that different than what 
we're all trying to do. <laughs> I, I guess like in some ways, like a lot of us, or, or what are most people that are going to church trying to do? And what, why isn't that always mysticism? I mean, it should be, <laughs> you know? Um, I, I like to characterize mysticism as something that's tinged with longing. And I think, unfortunately, we don't always find that in the practice of religion today. Sometimes it's just kind of what we do culturally. But when you see especially younger generations who have that that search, you know, the who go off and do the eat, pray, love in India or, you know, whatever it is, that wanderlust, that's that often is a starting point of mysticism, is the longing that's already planted in us by the divine. And I think we all have it somewhere. Sometimes we just need to uncover it a little bit. There's that quote from Carl Rahner, in the days ahead, you will either be a mystic, one who has experienced God for real, or nothing at all, which, I don't know, those are high stakes <laughs> for, for someone who doesn't feel like all that much of a mystic. Yes. Well, and I think it's easy to think of mystics as just the great ones like Teresa of Avila or John of the Cross or the people who are like levitating and having visions instead of recognizing that sometimes it's in those simple kind of contemplative moments that you might have over sipping coffee in the morning and watching the sunrise or, you know, watching your kids play or, you know, just those, those moments. And it's usually those moments that whet our appetite for more that get that longing really set aflame. Um, and is mysticism limited to Catholicism? Or... Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> Great. All right. So where do we find it? So I guess maybe two two questions. Where do we find it in the church? Um, and then where do we where is it found outside of the church? Yeah. So I'd like to think of mysticism as the original flame at the heart of any religion. So if you think of it that way, whether it's Judaism, Christianity, Islam, you know, any of the major world religions, there's this mystical spark. There was some sort of divine encounter that these people had and others come and follow around them. So you think of like the original apostles and, you know, the Christian tradition and then things spread and people are like, oh my gosh, there's something here. Like what, what was this? And so we all get excited and start to gather around this spark. But what happens over time, inevitably, because we're humans, is, you know, we have suddenly thousands of people coming to dance around the spark and worship the divine and all of that. And we have to start organizing. And so we start saying like, okay, well, you know what, quiet hours after 10 people, because there are <laughs> kids here, you know, and then they start saying like, then they're like, okay, well, what kind of music would honor the spark? You know, what kind of like, and so they start talking about like, what's the best kind of music and liturgies develop. And, you know, is it better for it to have guitars or organs? You know what, you know, and so we start getting into all those things that we think of when we think of religion. So you can find that in the Sufi tradition in Islam. You can find that in the Kabbalah tradition in Judaism. You could find that within Christianity, especially a lot of the great mystics who speak about divine union and that whole I'll say it doesn't have to be something ecstatic. You know, it doesn't have to be the great amazing, you know, you don't have to have the stigmata sure. <laughs> to be a mystic. But if you are set aflame with that sense of longing for something more, I would say you're already on that path. And how did how did you come to be so interested in mysticism? Did it, were it from a young age, were you obsessed with some of the women saints of our tradition? Or how did you get there? Yeah, great question. I would say both and. I, I 
in some ways, I feel like I was a natural contemplative in South Dakota, just obsessed with the sky. You know, I, I grew up in the wide open fields and would get home off of the school bus and remember just lying on the grass and staring at the clouds while my sisters ran inside. And I was just like, I'm just going to look at the clouds for a while. You know, and it's not like I sat there and was like, I'm now going to pray and commune with God. You know, it was just kind of a natural sense of, of presence. And I have always had a deep spiritual hunger. I remember in high school trying to figure out like, okay, so what is this prayer thing all about? I'd go on different retreats that our church or diocese would put on. And, um, you know, they would teach you very basic things like, okay, I'll give you the acronym ACTS, adoration, contrition, thanksgiving, supplication, you know? And I'm like, there's got, I mean, if there were saints levitating, they were surely doing something more than, you know, like, dear God, bless grandma and grandpa, you know? So I had this deep hunger to figure out like, what was this all about? And so I'd say one of the big catalysts for me was one, um, a good friend of mine on one of these retreats, um, he was in college, I was in high school, he was helping put on the retreat, and he taught me Ignatian meditation. I was mm -hmm. like, I knew there was something more to this, <laughs> you know? And so that really started, I would say, at least the daily interior practice. And so from age 17 until I went into the convent later, I would pray for an hour a day before I went to high school and all of that and practice Ignatian meditation. But even, even in high school, I remember trying to read Teresa of Avila at age, you know, 15. I'm like, I'm pretty sure I'm missing something here. For but, sure, yeah. <laughs> you know, like this it is It can important. be tough, yeah. Yeah, but it, it certainly deepened um, both in the convent and after I left when I had a pretty severe illness. Can we maybe start there for a second. So like, you, yeah. yeah, and just linger there a little bit. So you 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 join a convent, you're in the convent, mm -hmm. and then your your life starts to unravel a little bit. So I had been in this religious community for a few years. I was in formation over in Rome studying, you know, with a bunch of um, religious and seminarians from all over the world. And I, I remember starting to feel very off. And we were in northern Italy. And I remember some of the sisters were like, eh, I'm sure it's just the altitude. I'm like, okay, sure. Except by the end of the month, I was bedridden and mm -hmm. I had to be flown home, you know, with the help of a wheelchair and like never to return again. That certainly wasn't the plan. You know, my family's like, this is pretty severe. I think you should spend some time figuring out what's going on with your health if you are unable to walk. Sure. Um, so that caused a whole lot of questions and just an unraveling of sorts because I find for myself as well as for several others who go through any kind of deconstruction, um, you start to unravel in three different ways. Um, your your sense of identity, like who am I? What does this mean about myself? Um, your sense of belonging or community, like where do I fit? Like if I'm not a nun, what does that what does that mean? Like, and also your sense of mission. Like that was my whole purpose. I had thought I was going to be a nun for most of my life, and so those I found myself kind of like having those Saint Francis questions, like he had before the cross at night that apparently his brothers overheard him just saying all night long, like, who am I, God, and who are you? And so I had to ask all of these big questions. Yeah, so you use that word deconstruction, which in, in my head, when I've heard that, it's kind of people unlearning the religious tradition of their childhood and the kind of maybe the ways that was toxic or toxic or hurt them. Um, but it, so what is, how do you define deconstructing? Is it different than that? I would say... For me, it was a lot of waking up to how multicolored and multifaceted the world is instead of black and white. Um, I I thought I had a pretty compassionate, open-minded spirituality um, until, for example, like I couldn't go to church 
or I couldn't pray. And then I was like, oh my God, I can't, you know, like after praying for like four hours a day and I'm like, I can't meditate. I can't pray the rosary. I can't go to mass. I can't, you know, and um, even as I started to slowly improve, I would go to mass and have these anxiety attacks. And I remember telling my spiritual director that she was like an 80 year old nun. And she looked at me and she's like, if you're going to mass and you're having anxiety attacks, don't go. Mm. <laughs> you know, I was like, Oh yeah, right. Sure. Like, I don't know why I was clinging to this so much, but it was those types of things that that I had to deconstruct from and let go of. I was like, I didn't think I thought of God as a you know judge who was going to punish me, but apparently somewhere deep down, you know, I was still at least afraid of what that meant about who I was. Now, your story, I I mean, it reminds me of a lot of people's stories, but particularly for the purposes of this podcast of, of St. Ignatius's, right? So he is someone who has this identity of who he thinks he is and how he relates in the world and then gets shot in the leg with a cannonball um, and has to spend a pretty long convalescence where um, there's a lot of things that happen uh, while he's sort of bedridden. Um, he he. Did you feel like it was l like moving towards something deeper or positive at the time? Or is that like a really painful experience? Or is the answer yes to both? both. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Absolutely both. I remember um, the image that came to mind during that time was like, I feel like I'm on this battlefield and my chest has been blown open by some like shrapnel or something like that. And I'm having emergency open heart surgery and there's no time for anesthesia. And I know the divine surgeon is doing something really important and deep in here, but damn, does it hurt like hell, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? So I, I had a sense that there was deep transformative things going on, but it, so it was both beautiful and very painful. Mm. And that's, that's the time in St. Ignatius's life where he looked to the saints. Is that, is that something you did too? Who did oh, yes. Um, I, I started devouring a lot of the mystics. I mean, I, I think I read a hundred books in a year, um, including the entire corpus of John of Cross, the entire corpus of Teresa of Avila, along with a lot of things that I had been intending to read, you know, like Dostoevsky and Russian mystics. And, and, what, and what did that open up for you in your, in your faith life? Yeah, it really helped open up that sense of unknowing. It was also the time that I really started to get into Richard Rohr and his definition of the first and second half of life. And what is that for someone who hasn't heard about like the first and second half of life? So briefly, the first half of life is where we start to understand who we are and who we're not. And so we have this container and we say like, you know, I'm Catholic, I'm not Protestant, I'm straight, I'm not gay, I'm white, I'm not black, like this is who I am and who I'm not. And so it's pretty black and white, which for normal human development as a child is a you know, fairly normal thing. Um, however, sometime during life, um, <laughs> according to Rohr, it's through great pain or great love. I, I would like to meet the person where it happens through great love because everyone I know it happens through a great pain is where you're ushered into this second half of life, which really has nothing to do with age or chronology because there are you know 10-year-olds in cancer wards who are in their second half of life and there are 80-year-olds in pews who still are in their first half of life. But something, <laughs> for me, I felt drop-kicked into the second half of life where you start to realize that there's a whole lot more nuance and gray or, you know, as I like to say, technicolor out there in the world. And that this sense of, of mystery and unknowing is something to be celebrated and not something to be solved. What, is, what does that look like in the life of someone who 
works 40 hours or more than 40 hours a week, uh, has a lot of other obligations. How does this fit into your own life? What can it look like for someone who's not in a monastery? Yes, yes. And I think that's the the key question today is that a lot of the mystics and saints, unfortunately, a lot of them were monastic. And so that's wonderful. Like, great. I'm glad they found their vocation. But then for the rest of us who are not living that vocation, sometimes it feels a little more challenging. Like, okay, so I can't get lost in a two-hour meditation every day. A lot of life admin to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I would say um, a couple things. It looks like finding some sort of practice, whatever that is, finding the stillness and the sense of presence in your day-to-day life. And like I said, it could be sipping coffee in the morning. It could be, you know, 20 minutes before you go to bed, like just reading and slowing down. You know, it could be, um, I have a a woman in spiritual direction who her favorite spiritual practice is horseback riding. She's like, that is where I feel most connected to God. Would definitely not be for me, but (laughs) I'd be terrified I was going to get like bucked off at any time. But I I see that is sort of like the spiritual life though in some ways. But anyway, no, there there are different things that work for different people. Yeah, absolutely. And all of those things, spiritual practice, you are just like practicing anything else. You're practicing piano, practicing sports, practicing whatever, like you're practicing for a whole nother purpose. And you're, what you're practicing is this interior stance of receptivity. You know, I like to call it a Marian stance, like how Mary said, like, all right, let it be done. Fiat being that receptive to whatever unfolds in reality, to whatever God's will is, that's what we're trying to practice in whatever that daily spiritual practice is. And that can be hard because oftentimes it doesn't come in the form of a monastic bell ringing calling you to prayer. It comes in the form of like a ping on your work email or like a kid crying in the middle of the night or you know so many other things. But that's, you know, kind of in the Brother Lawrence or some of those other things like the, the sacrament of the present moment and being obedient to God's will and reality. This reminds me of a a great metaphor you have about mysticism, because you say it's not something that we can like do or go after like on our own uh, volition. You compare it to surfing. Mm -hmm. Um, Could you unpack that a little bit? Sure. So that I think that's one of the hard things um, when people have this longing for for more of the divine for some sense of union is they're like, okay, now what do I do? Like, what are the six steps to get there? (laughs) You know, which there are certainly things that we can do to help adopt this this receptive stance. But the analogy of surfing I like to use because we don't control the waves in surfing. You know, you can practice getting up on your board, having a better sense of balance, like all of those things, but whether or not a wave comes that day is not up to you. And so similarly, when you go to prayer or whatever your spiritual practice is, maybe you like to take long walks in nature, Sometimes it's going to be profound, kind of like having those like barrel waves that those surfers are like, oh my gosh, it was mind blowing. But then other times it's going to be really quiet and maybe bland or dry, just like those days when surfers are like, you know, there's there's nothing happening <laughs> in the surf today. And it would be quite silly of us to shame ourselves or to beat ourselves up or think that our techniques are off just because the waves didn't show up. <laughs> You know, so we do what we can to show up and be available, but it's it's up to spirit to decide if the waves or any kind of profound experience is going to happen. You mentioned before that there's not really an age limit on when you can 
enter the second half of your life or be or you know become a mystic something we're seeing a lot today is this real hunger among younger people for for the kind of the divine that you mentioned even if they're not looking within traditional religious avenues so i'm wondering what what you think accounts for that and how the church or just us as humans should be responding to that hunger? My hunch is what accounts for that is something that made a lot of sense to me as I was reading um, this psychologist who specializes in a quarter-life crisis. (laughs) This is fascinating. I used to kind of giggle at that idea, like, oh, us millennials, (laughs) quarter-life crises, you know, but there's something very real to that generational shift. Um, If you think of, you know, a boomer's traditional life trajectory, would be like, I'm going to go to school, graduate, maybe go to college, get married, settle down in a career, have 2.5 kids. And then, you know, I'll retire, um, you know, after my kids are out of the house and live a nice kind of planned out life. For a lot of us younger folks, millennials, Gen Z, we don't have that kind of life trajectory. We're not settling down at age, you know, 23 and starting to have a family right away. We don't have a career that we settle into because What happens for boomers and those of older generations is that towards the end of their life, whether they're empty nesting for the first time or they're not working for the first time, suddenly they have all of this space and these questions start bubbling up like, well, what does this mean about who I am now? (laughs) You know, like if, if I'm not a nurse like I was for the past 35 years, like what, what purpose do I have? If I'm not, you know, a mom taking care of these kids or if, you know, all of the different questions. Whereas for us younger generations, those questions are coming up a lot sooner because we're doing a lot of searching in our twenties and thirties. And we're trying to figure those things out earlier because it's funny. Those are the two main groups that um, the demographics that are represented in spiritual wanderlust are boomers who are retiring and then young people who are trying to figure themselves out. <laughs> so it's kind of a funny um, mixture of people, but we're all asking the same questions. Do, do they respond differently to some of the like teachings and writings of the mystics? Or is it sort of like an aha in a similar way for both age demographics? I would say it depends. Um, and it I would say it especially depends um, how much inner work they've done and how available they are to all of that. Because... Um, if you're at the very beginning, I mean, obviously all of that is a process being shoved into the yeah, second Yeah, this is actually probably a good question. Is is this really for someone who's at the beginning of their interior journey? Or is this a step, maybe a step three or four? I would say mysticism in some ways is for everyone. Um, Evelyn Underhill, who's a British mystic from the early 1900s, she's she was kind of like the Richard Rohr of her day, very popular and um, did a lot of great synthesizing of the mystics. And she's like, if you're not a mystic before you die, you will be in heaven. <laughs> like that's just yeah. the long and short of it. Um, this is the whole goal of life is theosis, is that kind of divine union. Um, however, how many of us are conscious of that? That's that's the question mark is, you know, whether we're actually trying to pursue that and make space for that that search and um, space for practice, encountering the sacred, et cetera, and how many of us are still living in kind of a opaque, unconscious kind of way. Mm-hmm. Wondering if you could introduce us to maybe one of your favorite mystics or someone that you would want to like introduce someone to um, if they're kind of at the beginning of their their journey into this. Whenever people ask where to get started, I think it's always easiest to start with the moderns. So if you've never encountered mysticism before, I would start with either Thomas Merton or Richard Rohr. That I think is the most approachable, easy way to get started. If you are 
hungry for more than that, then my gosh, I love John of the Cross. I mean, he's he's my favorite in there. And there's a lot of female mystics. Yeah, can you um, can you introduce been... us to a to a woman mystic? Yes, absolutely. I'll I'll name two. One is Catherine Doherty. Um, Catherine de Heck Doherty. She um, was a Russian woman who moved. She emigrated, fled the Bolshevik Revolution and all of that. Um, landed in New York, so she was a contemporary of Thomas Merton and Dorothy Day, and did a lot of like really beautiful work. But also brought a lot of her Eastern religion, like Orthodox expression of Christianity, over. And so she, um, I remember it was. Um, Oh, I was listening to an interview of um, Benedict Groeschel, the Franciscan, and he said if it wasn't for Catherine Doherty, he's like, I don't think Franciscans would take, like, silent retreats. <laughs> he was like, mm -hmm. silent retreats were largely introduced to the West by Catherine Doherty. Like, that was not something common practice over here. So she did a lot to reintroduce the contemplative tradition in the West. And she was just like, she had so much chutzpah. <laughs> like, she just, it was really impressive. She, like, she almost got beat to death by a group of Georgian white women because she did a lot of work in racism before the civil rights movement. And that was not a popular thing to do. Um, and she had this really amazing way of ending some of her talks where she would say like, you know what? She's talking to all these white Catholics and she's like, at the end of your life, you're going to go to heaven and Jesus is going to meet you at the gate. And he's going to say like, Susan, Joe, whatever your name is, like, I can't let you in because I was hungry and you didn't give me to eat. I was thirsty, you didn't give me to drink, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And you're going to say, Lord, but what do you mean? When were you hungry and when were you thirsty? And he will look at you in the eyes and he will say, when I was a black person and you were a white American Catholic. <laughs> Jeez. I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, and one thing I've noticed about spiritual wanderlust is that it's not just listening to what people think of as like the spiritual traditions. You're also like really interested in psychology and neuroscience. I'm wondering if you could just like maybe that's, that came as a surprise to me. Maybe it shouldn't have. But uh, what are some of the insights you're getting from the scientific community and in, into mysticism? What we learn from psychology and science is just the the embodiment side of things and how to be fully human, which is really what holiness is, <laughs> is being fully human, fully ourselves. And so there's a lot of um, that overlaps with psychology. You know, that's a lot of what our um, you read a lot of the saints and they talk about practicing virtue and things like that are really overlapping with what psychology is trying to do. Like, how do we be whole, healthy human beings? who are not only um, balanced ourselves, but at service to the world. And so I love in psychology, um, what it helps us do is look for the fire instead of just focus on the smoke. Like, let's not focus just on like sinful behaviors and, you know, things like that. Like, I, okay, great. But why? <laughs> like, why are you you know, addicted to alcohol? Why are you constantly snapping out in anger, you know, at your spouse? Why um, do you feel jealousy rising within you or fall into gossip all the time at work? Let's look at those things underneath that. And there are a number of saints who do this anyway, but psychology does so in a way that's aided by science and neuropsychology and all of those things that can really help us understand like the impact of trauma, not just upon our, our brains, but upon our entire bodies. And so all of that is hugely helpful and I think is an important piece, a hugely important piece of that path to wholeness. Well, there 
a lot you just said there. We could go in so many directions, but uh, we don't want to take up too much of your time. But if folks want to get more into that, it's uh, spiritualwonderless.org and you can dig into all the resources. But before we let you go, Kelly, we do have one last question that we ask all of our guests. You could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real. Who would it be and why? Uh, the first person that came to mind was Eddie Hillisum. Are you guys familiar with Eddie? Water book. Uh, after oh, we talked to Richard Rohr. So um, yeah, it's good. But, yes. but, but who is she? Yes. So um, she is this marvelous. Um, she was one of the, she would be the other female mystic that I would mention. Um, she feels so incredibly modern. She died in the Holocaust. So she was at least culturally Jewish, but was really interested in in these kind of mystical depths, including Christianity. And she just had such a delicious way of writing and of being present to um, the joy that life still brings, even as she's like walking along barbed wire in a, you know, concentration camp. I, I find her like to be the patron saint of the nuns and duns, like the spiritual but not religious of today. Um, so that's, I would canonize her and make her the patron saint of all of us seekers. All right. Well, St. Eddie. And again, the, the website is spiritualwanderlust.org. There's a podcast, um, a, a course. Um, what, what Anything you want to plug in particular about what you're excited about right now? Sure. Yeah. So we're preparing for 2023. We're going to be launching the Celtic Spirituality School. So that's going to be exciting. Um, it's a really wonderful lens for looking at the contemplative and mystical life from soul friends to living in thin liminal spaces to you know, kind of the monastic quality of all of that. Um, there's a lot there. So that'll be um, available soon at um, CelticSchool.org. Um, if people are interested more in mysticism, you can check out our free course, um, mysticismcourse.com on that as well. So lots of possibilities, women mystics, etc. So check it all out. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Kelly. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Night by the stars. Seven days a week, the darkest hour. Time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And 
And now it's time for some housekeeping. What do we have this week, Zach? A couple things. One, we want to thank a new Patreon supporter. Uh, Huge shout out to Jennifer Beal for uh, signing up at our Patreon page, which is, again, patreon.com slash americamedia. You can go there, support the show, check out all the benefits that come with being a Patreon supporter, um, including uh, at the $10 level, getting a free subscription to America Magazine. And secondly... We've got some really exciting uh, bonus episodes in your feed uh, this month connected to a great initiative out of America. Yes, you might have noticed on Tuesday a bonus Jesuitical uh, episode pop up in your feed. Catholic parishes are booming in the Southwest. What does that mean for the U.S. church? So this is Zach and I's conversation with our producer, Sebastian Gomes, who is also the producer of our groundbreaking documentary, People of God, and our colleague, uh, Father Jim McDermott. And we we look at the first segment of this uh, feature-length film that looks at churches that are growing in the Southwest and both the opportunities and challenges that come with that, especially as how that relates to integrating Hispanic and Anglo-Catholic communities. Yeah, and we're going to be doing this all month long. Um, I've got a lot of hot takes on parish life and how they should, how it should exist. But uh, one of the things that this documentary brings out that is that not all parishes are the same, and they've all got these unique issues to them. And so, I was grateful to have uh, Sebastian's perspective because he spent a long time working on this project, going to places on the ground, talking to people. Um, so we're going to be doing that all month long. So look for that in your feed. And again, you're going to enjoy these a lot more. Um, th- it'll still make sense if you haven't seen the documentary. Uh, so don't. Skip skip it. Uh, but you will enjoy it more, I think, if you watch this. So again, head to americamagazine.org slash people of God. And now we have As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. Today, we are recording this on All Souls Day, as you mentioned at the top of the show. So I, I wanted to talk about the spiritual practice of praying for the dead. I was thinking about this just, you know, as we approached this this part of the liturgical year. And i I'm very lucky in that I did not experience a lot of loss of people who I was very close to for much of my younger years. But then in the past few years, I, I lost two people I was very close with in, in very kind of unexpected and quick ways. And in the wake of that, I've, I've found great consolation in the practice of praying for the dead. You know, every week at mass, when you get to the end of the petitions and you pray for the dead, these people would just like come into my head and I would feel like I was able not just to to pray to them, but to just have their memory recalled to me. I don't know, talk to them. <laughs> um, and I just found it to be a really, really moving experience. Yeah, it's um, something that I've always, I've had mixed feelings on. I would say consolation I've definitely had. Death is such like a final thing, right? And even the way you're talking about it, um, it, it, it does sort of like remind me that the relationship continues beyond death, right? It isn't It isn't such a final thing. One of the other flip sides of that is I've always felt like there are people in my life where I'm like, if I'm praying for the dead, praying for them to get into heaven is usually the only way that's like construed. Mm-hmm. And I'm always sort of like, well, I, I think they're good. <laughs> like, if I'm honest with myself, right? Like, I, I, I don't think my grandma needs They don't much. need your help. <laughs> yeah, for real. That's like, um, I think they're already there. So that part of me, that's always kind of like turned me off from mm-hmm. like praying for the dead, um, which is not to say that I've like not like felt some consolation and just like calling to mind like that that God loves those people that have gone before us and 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 those people are praying for me right now right it's not just that I'm praying for the dead but that the dead are praying for me is is a great consolation to me yeah i think i don't want this to come out the wrong way but but the couple of people in my life i don't doubt that they're in heaven i i think they 
deserve to be with God. Uh, but, you know, they, they their lives ended at a time when they were, I don't know exactly what their relationship to God was. And so prayer for me can all, often seem ineffective. I think that's pretty common for a lot of people. <laughs> we pray for a lot of things we don't get. But I, when I'm praying for for people of it that I've lost, it just feels like I have no doubt that it's working. I don't doubt that God's listening to me and wants these people to be with him as much as I do. And so, I don't know, it's like the one time in prayer where I'm actually confident. <laughs> yeah. And there's not a, sometimes I'm tempted to get hung up on like the logistics of how all this works. And I just have to be reminded that like time is linear for us. Right. But like these people can both be like in purgatory in heaven at the same time, kind of the way we conceive of time and space, right? Like it can both, they can both be affective now and sort of for and retroactively, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, big it, mystery. <laughs> yeah, big mystery. But you know, God is not limited by time and space the way that we are. And so I'm challenged to remind myself of that because I like to get hung up on the, the hows and what's what's really going on and the logistics of it all. Well, Listeners, this is a month to pray for our faithful departed. Um, so maybe just take that spiritual practice up this month and, and see what fruits there are for you there. And now I'll get us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Cristobal Spielman. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcast, and if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio at American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.